0: Welcome to role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 112, The Space Gamer, White Dwarf, Ares, and Imagine Magazines. Before we get into this week's topics, I wanted to take a minute to thank all of you one final time for your support for... And kind words about the episodes we ran over the past month, covering the best modules of all time. One thing I wanted to make very clear is that we're not done covering modules on this show. While we got a lot of requests for modules to put into those shows, I also got a bunch of requests to keep the old school materials coming. So, I've taken the time over the past four weeks to compile lists of modules, especially old school AD&D modules, and I'll be grouping those for shows down the line. I'm also going to use some Pathfinder modules, as well as some from third-party publishers, as I got some requests to cover those as well, though I didn't get requests for specific modules. Anyway, I said all of that to say two things. One, thanks for all your support. And two, I do take requests. So if you've got a game, a system, a creator, a module, hell, so long as it's tabletop role-playing game related, hit me up by email or on the socials and I will do everything within my power to get it on this show. So, now that we've spent an entire month on a single topic, let's reach back into the old bag of tabletop role playing game topics and get to this week's show. That means it's time to crank up the tour bust and get to the first subject. The Space Gamer was a magazine focused on science fiction and fantasy board games and tabletop role playing games. For the sake of simplicity, and because I'm bound to trip over the name a thousand times in recording this if I don't, we're going to refer to it as TSG for the remainder of this segment. TSG began life as a quarterly publication of the then-new Metagaming Concepts Company in March of 1975. That first edition and the next 16 issues were in a plain paper digest format. And if you're curious about what exactly that looks like, there are dozens of pics online of not only TSG, but dozens of other magazines that either use or did use that particular format. Howard M. Thompson was the owner of Metagaming and was also the first editor of the magazine, and in that very first issue, he authored a piece titled, Where We're Going. In that piece, he stated that, quote, the magazine had been planned for after our third or fourth game, but circumstances demand we do it now, end quote. The circumstances were after the first game, Stellar Conquest, and it was the sales numbers for that game, combined with the hunger for more news on the science fiction and fantasy communities of the time. By the time TSG reached 17 issues, it had grown to a bi-monthly magazine and had a slick full-size presentation. One name that pretty much all of our listeners should know, at least by now if they didn't know before the podcast began, is Steve Jackson. He was not only an employee of Metagaming Concepts at launch, but also a contributor to the magazine. When he left the company after Issue 26 in 1980, he got the rights to TSG, and Steve Jackson Games became the publisher of record beginning with Issue 27, which was the March-April 1980 issue. In that issue, Howard Thompson wrote a report about the change, noting that, quote, Metagaming staff won't miss the effort. After the change in ownership, Metagaming feels comfortable with the decision. It was the right thing to do, end quote. Steve Jackson made his own announcement in that first issue under Steve Jackson Games ownership, quote, TSG is going monthly. Starting in May, it will be a monthly magazine, end quote. True to his word, the May 1980 issue, which was number 28, began the TSG monthly publication run, though I do have to note that it comes with an asterisk, which I'll explain momentarily. TSG remained with Steve Jackson Games for five years, and critics and readers alike all agreed that this was the period of time when it was at its most popular and influential. Regular listeners of this podcast will note that when I include reviews from TSG, most of those are from the period 1980 to 1985, so I tend to agree with that assessment. Starting in 1983, TSG was split into two magazines which published in alternating months. TSG lost the The from its title and was simply known as Space Gamer, beginning with issue 64. Its focus from that point during the split was entirely on science fiction. Fantasy Gamer was the other, and its focus, as the title would suggest, was on fantasy gaming and fiction. The split turned out to not be as popular as Steve Jackson Games anticipated, so after a year, the two magazines recombined, keeping the name Space Gamer. Warren Spector, who became the editor for the newly recombined magazine, had this to say in the column Counterintelligence, which appeared in the July-August 1984 issue, quote, You see, we were churning out magazines, Space Gamer, Fantasy Gamer, Fire and Movement, and Auto Duel Quarterly at the rate of two a month we had to find some way to preserve what little sanity we had left. The best way to do this was to merge Space Gamer and Fantasy Gamer. As it has for the past year, Space Gamer will appear bimonthly, giving us the time to get some games done as well." By 1985, the weight of producing a magazine was a hell of a lot more than Steve Jackson Games was willing to handle, which is exactly what had happened with metagaming concepts before them. The primary issue was that Steve Jackson Games, as noted in the Warren Spector quote, wasn't able to place nearly enough of their focus on creating new games. Even the switch back to a bi-monthly release, which they'd hoped would alleviate the issues, didn't help. So, in the column, Where We're Going, which appeared in the September-October 1985 edition, Steve Jackson made the following announcement, quote, We've sold Space Gamer. We'll still be heavily involved, but SJ Games won't be the publisher any longer. Giving up SG is definitely traumatic, but it gives us the time to do other things, especially GURPS, end quote. The new owners of Space Gamer were Diverse Talents Incorporated, and they initially used Space Gamer as a section in their own magazine, the VIP of gaming. But the popularity of the Space Gamer section of the magazine was so great, they eventually realized they needed to spin it off into its own magazine once again. Ann Jaffe was named the editor, and Space Gamer released its first solo issue under the new ownership with the January-February 1987 issue. One note here though is that DTI chose to use the title Space Gamer Fantasy Gamer for the new issues. DTI continued to publish Space Gamer Fantasy Gamer into 1988, but the final issue under their ownership was the July-August issue that year. 3W Inc. bought the title and started releasing Space Gamer Fantasy Gamer under their banner with the October-November issue in 1988. Jeff Albanese and Perrin D. Tong were named editors of the magazine at the relaunch. 3W Inc. continued to publish the line through 1989, though editors had been changed earlier that year, with Barry Osser and Jay Aiden taking the reins. The final issue from 3W was the October-November issue in 1989. At that point, Albanese and Tong got the rights for future combat simulations, and they published one issue for them, the March-April 1990 issue. The magazine was then shuttered, and the game industry wondered if that would be the end. Turns out it wasn't. Better Games picked up the rights in 1992, and they cranked production back up with the September-October 1992 issue. The final issue was released in 1993 as the March-April issue, after which Space Gamer Fantasy Gamer's existence as a print magazine came to an end. Somewhere along the line, Better Games changed its name to Space Gamer, for those of you keeping track at home. They've also taken advantage of the internet, reviving the brand online, though it has been noted on more than one occasion that this version of the magazine isn't anywhere near the level that it was during its heyday. If you'd like to check it out for yourself, their website is spacegamer.com. That's spacegamer, all one word.com. In 2010, Steve Jackson Games heated the siren call and began republishing back issues in PDF format, and that's where most of us have been getting our reviews for older games from. If you're interested in checking those out, the website is sjgames.com forward slash The Space Gamer picked up the 1977 Charles S. Roberts Award for Best Semi-Professional Magazine and the Origins Award for Best Professional Role-Playing Magazine of 1982. Our tour continues with the UK publication, White Dwarf. White Dwarf actually began its existence as a newsletter produced by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone called Owl and Weasel. It lasted for 25 issues beginning in February of 1975. Owl and Weasel became so popular that Jackson and Livingstone realized they needed, to paraphrase the movie Jaws, a bigger magazine. So White Dwarf was created. The first issue was intended to be May-June of 1977, but it was delayed a month and was instead June-July. With the might of Games Workshop behind it, issue number one was 20 pages on glossy stock with a two-color cover, which, by the way, put White Dwarf at the top of the cool factor for gaming magazines at the time, as most didn't use the glossy stock. I'm looking at you, Dragon. The plan from the beginning was for White Dwarf to be a bi-monthly magazine, as was the trend at the time. That initial run was 4,000 copies, and White Dwarf quickly became one of the top game magazines out there. White Dwarf continued the focus from Owl and Weasel on fantasy and science fiction board games and tabletop role-playing games, but Livingstone and Jackson quickly realized that with more space available to print in, they'd be able to write more in-depth articles than they could previously. They also realized that they'd be able to get into reviews of games, as well as the publishing of scenarios for many of the games they'd reviewed, as well, of course, as the materials produced by Games Workshop. When it came to tabletop role-playing games, for the longest time, White Dwarf tended to focus on what were known as the big three games of the early 1980s, AD&D, Ruin Quest, and Traveler. During this time, White Dwarf saw an entire generation of writers work for them that would go on to be big names in the game world, two of whom were Phil Masters and Marcus L. Roland, and the OG gamers out there should recognize those names pretty quickly. If not, well, I'll tell you what, we'll cover them in an upcoming episode. As a publication, White Dwarf blew up in the early 1980s. One of the reasons for that was the fact that it incorporated mini-scenarios, which were game scenarios that could be completed in one night. That was a big deal, since pretty much all of the -the off-the-shelf modules required multiple sessions to work through, and therefore weren't compatible with the one-shot concept that some gamers liked. These mini-scenarios usually involved a single task for the characters to accomplish, and they were typically written so that they could be very easily dropped into an existing campaign if you didn't want to run them on their own. During this period, a number of very popular and very well-remembered features appeared. Thread the Barbarian, which was a satirical comic strip that tended to poke fun at the industry as a whole, helped White Dwarf increase in popularity. Dave Langford's book review column, Critical Mass, also helped the magazine. One other thing that White Dwarf had that helped it stand apart was their very comical advertising series, The Androx Diaries. It's one of those things that you have to see to understand, and if you Google search it, you'll find plenty of examples that make the point. White Dwarf seemed to always carry a broad variety of scenarios that covered the big three, as well as any other game that tickled the fancy of the writers and editors, and their editorial and review style tended to be more to the point than anything else out there. In other words, they weren't looking to kiss anyone's ass, and you knew it when you read it. By the mid-1980s, Game Workshop had come to a realization and that was that they were spending a lot of time hyping other companies' games and not quite as much time hyping their own. So they decided to change the focus of White Dwarf. The decision was made to focus almost exclusively on Games Workshop products, and that led to the final D&D article appearing in issue 93 of the magazine, which released in September of 1987. The redesign was fully completed by issue 102, which dropped in June of 1988. And for those keeping score at home, by this point White Dwarf had become a monthly release. That had happened in the early 1980s when the popularity of the magazine really took off. The basic idea behind the redesign was that White Dwarf would replace the Citadel Journal, which was a support piece for the Warhammer fantasy battle game that was published occasionally. That being said, White Dwarf supporting Warhammer and other Games Workshop's game wasn't a new idea. It'd been doing that to some extent all along. However, Games Workshop decided they'd rather use the entire magazine, for the most part, to handle that since it would allow for deeper dives into scenarios, picks of new miniatures hitting the market, and tips for building terrain and other builds to help the Warhammer player. In December of 2004, White Dwarf celebrated the printing of its 300th issue in the UK and North America. As part of the celebrations, every issue contained some special freebies, as well as articles detailing the history of the magazine, as well as the history of Games Workshop. One feature of White Dwarf that has remained a constant, and constantly popular with readers since the redesign, are the monthly battle reports. These detail the battles between different forces in the Warhammer game, and they follow the gamers step by step through their army selection, tactics, and deployment, and they follow the battle all the way to the conclusion. How deep into detail these reports go depends on the size of the game, typically, and the availability of pictures and other materials. In October of 2012, White Dwarf saw a bit of a redesign as well as a shuffling of staff. It became a nine-member production staff and saw the organization of articles as well as the topic focus being adjusted. That focus remains to this day, though the staff and staff count have changed over the years. I mentioned a few moments ago that White Dwarf had become a monthly publication in the early 1980s. It remained so through the release of the January 2014 issue, which was number 409 for those keeping score. On February 1st of that year, the format changed to 32 pages and began being published weekly. The numbering system was also reset so that that February 1st issue became the new number one. Coinciding with the change, Warhammer Visions was created. A sister title, it was intended to be a monthly release, and it was envisioned to be more of an image-based release, with White Dwarf placing more importance on the written word. White Dwarf's new weekly format lasted for 131 weeks before returning to the monthly format with the September 2016 issue. At that time, it also absorbed Warhammer Visions, allowing the magazine to go back to the way it was before the release schedule was changed. When you take a look at the list of editors for White Dwarf over the years, you'll notice many names that should ring bells for us old school gamers. Ian Livingstone, Paul Cockburn, Robin Dews, they're just three of the names. I'd call the list a murderer's row, but unless you're familiar with the 1926 Yankees, that reference won't mean much. Let's instead say this is one kick-ass list of talent. Oh, and we're not quite done with White Dwarf yet. In the early 1980s, if you were a mail-order subscriber, you'd get a small companion magazine called Black Sun, edited by Steve Williams. Some of the white dwarf staff also contributed, and Black Sun was more of a humor-based release, with parodies and humorous columns being the majority of the material, though some gaming news and extended reviews were also included. While Black Sun disappeared for a bit, it came back in the late 1980s, with Tim Pollard acting as the producer, writer, and illustrator, though he did get help on occasion from other Games Workshop authors. Since the focus of White Dwarf had shifted to Games Workshop materials almost exclusively by this point, the focus of Black Sun did as well, and the focus moved to news, reviews, and new rules for current Games Workshop products. And I know if I don't mention this here I'm going to get a ton of at's by the end of the day. Games Workshop's US studio had their own spin-off they ran online for a bit, called Black Gabo. It was a bi-weekly release with columns like Rules of Engagement and Ask the Scenery Guy that were intended to help answer gamers' questions. The name Black Gobbo was supposed to be humorous on its own, but it's also the first clue that the release was, in pretty much every way, the opposite of White Dwarf. I mean, black and white are polar opposites. Goblins, which is what Gobbo is short for, hate dwarves and vice versa. The e-zine was free while you had to pay for White Dwarf. Do you see what I mean? Black Gobbo was canceled in 2008 when Games Workshop decided to rework its online strategy. White Dwarf is still being published today, and if you're interested in picking up a single copy, check out your local game shop. If you're interested in a subscription, check out the Games Workshop website, games-workshop.com. Next up on our magazine deep dive is Aries. Ares. First published in 1980 by Simulations Publications Inc., Ares was considered by SPI as the science fiction counterpoint to Strategy and Tactics. The idea for Ares was to publish a game every issue, as Strategy and Tactics did, but with a focus on science fiction and fantasy, which S&T did not. By 1982, SPI had lost a bunch of money, and when they got too deep in the hole, they sold Ares to TSR. As Shannon Applecline noted in his 2014 book, Designers and Dragons, the 1980s, quote, TSR did very little with SPI's role-playing games. Ares Magazine number 12, which was prepared by SPI and published by TSR, included a game called Star Traders, which was for use with Universe. It was the last support for that game system. As TSR turned further away from SPI's origins, Ares Magazine soon became an Ares section in Dragon Magazine. However, it didn't focus on the SPI games, but instead became a place to talk about TSR's own science fiction games, such as Gamma World and Star Frontiers." TSR would publish Ares from Issue 12 in 1982 through Issue 17 in 1984. With the Dragon Magazine April 1984 issue, Ares was, as we noted moments ago, folded into that magazine and remained there through the July 1986 issue. Counting the total from both SPI and TSR, 17 issues were published along with two special issues. Jerry Epperson reviewed the first issue of Ares for the May-June 1980 issue of White Dwarf. He noted that both the magazine and the game inside it, called World Killer, quote, was a disappointment. It's uneven. Expect nothing but the best in serious science fiction writing here, and nothing but the worst from the games, end quote. Hamish Wilson chimed in for the July-August 1980 issue of Phoenix. He noted it was, quote, well put together, end quote. His summary was that it, quote, lacks form, shape, and direction. Rather than being bold, uncompromising, and nailing its colors to the mast, Ares has, as it were, crept out into the open with some fiction, some fact, and some game, end quote. Obviously, if you want to see some of those issues of the standalone Ares, you're going to need to Google search and follow your way down the internet rabbit hole. For those who happen to have one of those CD collections of Dragon Magazine that were eventually taken up the market, you'll find the Ares sections from those on there. Last up on the tour this week is Imagine. Imagine. This one comes from TSR Hobbies UK and was originally published in April of 1983. As has been noted by more than one writer over the years, Imagine was TSR's attempt to get their piece of the British magazine market. Imagine was published monthly between April of 1983 and October of 1985 for a total of 30 issues. There was one special edition as well, so Imagine Shelf Life was all of 31 issues before it was cancelled. Don Turnbull was the publisher and Paul Cockburn was the assistant editor of record for the entirety of the run. In multiple interviews throughout the 1990s, Gary Gygax would claim that Imagine had been run at a loss from the very beginning, and would suggest that the only reason TSR kept publishing it as long as they did was because it was a handy way to market all of TSR's products. However, as has also been noted by writers over the years, White Dwarf's foothold on the UK magazine scene was much like D&D's foothold on the fantasy game market. They were there first and sure as hell weren't going to give any ground. Imagine does have an alumnus who did pretty okay for himself, Neil Gaiman. Early in his career, he wrote for Imagine, starting with film reviews. However, his very first published short story was also published by Imagine, May 1984's Feather Quest. How to Sell the Ponty Bridge also saw its first publishing in Imagine in March of 1985. Now, I've got a few other fun facts I'd like to drop in here. Some of the official AD&D materials published in Imagine eventually found their way into Unearthed Arcana. Imagine also was responsible for the Pelinor gaming world, so you can either thank them or blame them for that. The classic adventure game comic, The Sword of Alibron, appeared in Imagine from issues one through sixteen, and was revived as Octor's Axe in issues twenty-six through thirty. One more fact to drop, and you can decide whether it's fun or not. When some of the TSR UK staffers were let go because they were considered to be redundant after the cancellation of Imagine, they, as you might guess, got a little pissed off. For their revenge, they started their own publication, Game Master, with the idea being to keep the spirit of Imagine alive. They published materials for Pelennor, but also managed to get on the bad side of Gary Gygax when they published articles detailing the closure of Imagine. Game Master published five issues between October of 1985 and 1987 before it, too, shuttered. And with that, we've come to the end of this week's tour. Next week, we'll go post-apocalyptic with Twilight 2000, and we'll also take a look at the first role-playing game totally thought up and created in Spain, Aquilar. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. For those not aware, that show's all about building an entire campaign for you from scratch. We're building for the Fallout role-playing game this season, but I'd note that what we're building could be easily lifted out and dropped into the post-apocalyptic setting of your choice. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-playing history is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, Bad at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's Aquilar and Twilight 2000. And no, I don't mean sparkly vampires. Thank God. That's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis in your role-playing history.